The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but we're not going to get there right away. So um, if you're a guest to Christ Church, I just mentioned Honey and Jay are here, but we just added them to our pastoral staff. Last week, we, we welcomed them and introduced them. And so we're at this moment, and I wanted to take uh, an opportunity to talk today specifically about the role of women in ministry and in family, really in the design of creation. And so the sermon title today is Women in the Design of Creation. And this matters for a handful of important reasons. First among them is that we've added honey to our pastoral staff, which we've never had before. You guys don't know this. You guys are excited. Um, You guys don't know this, but um, we we are not like a traditional church in the sense of male and female roles. Now listen, we are as conservative, Bible-based, Jesus-focused as of a church that you will find. We are not a progressive church. We are not a leftist church. We're not trying to align with any political affiliation. We're trying to be faithful to the word of God and fixated on the person of Jesus. Do you know that? And because of that, we're gonna be stable and steady and we're not gonna be thrown about by all the things that happen in our culture. I want you to hear that. However, many churches like ours do not affirm and employ women in senior levels of leadership and they re- restrain or restrict women from serving in the role of pastor. And so you go, okay, what kind of church is this? And that's a fair question. So I want to talk to that question today and I want you to know where we stand and why we stand there so that you can understand as we move forward. Um, this is super important. This is also important because, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but half of the population of the planet is female. Did you guys notice that when you came in here? Um, all of us, all of us need to think deeply about this particular topic and have convictions that are based not in culture or tradition, but in the word of God. And too many of us, especially in this particular region of our country in this age, we get our cues from thinkers who actually may not think the way that you think. And so for me personally, I came to make a shift in my understanding and application of man as male and female from the scriptures. And I want to share that with you um, this morning. And then I want to take you to, to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I want to show you why that is. And so um, what you're going to get today is going to be a little unusual. So I'm kind of like pulling the curtain back and showing you the way that sermons are built and Bible interpretation happens and how decisions are made. So this is a little bit of like a tour of the sausage factory. That's what's happening. So some of you are here and you're like, I didn't, I didn't want it that tour. I didn't show up for that tour. I don't want to see things go into a grinder. I understand. I understand. However, it's very important that you understand why we're doing what we're doing, where this comes from, so that you don't make false conclusions um, and have some reason to be alarmed or concerned unnecessarily. Does that make sense? Now, why is this important? And especially if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, I just want to like thank you for being here and just acknowledge the fact that um, the church tends to move really slowly. And we're also usually about 300 years behind the culture. So right now our culture is trying to figure out what a woman is. And we're like, can women be pastors? You know, that's how, this is how this is working out. And I just want to say like, um, we, we affirm that like, this is God's world. He made it and everything in it. He made man as male and female. He created marriage and family and society and structure and hierarchy and authority. And he gave good gifts and he's doing a He's doing a thing in the world. He's got a purpose. And like, we want to align ourselves with that because we believe that's where human flourishing experiences at its highest. And we want what's best for you, for your marriage, for your family, for the world, for the church. And like, we really truthfully believe that God has the answers to those things. Um, And sometimes people get confused about that. So we want to think deeply, amen? 
And so if you're here and you're in a, a, like a, a seeking pattern, if you're like looking for truth or exploring Christianity or church or whatever, we're really glad that you're here and this is an important conversation for us to have. Now, I mentioned that and I'm kind of staying at the intellectual level here, but I also wanna like dip into the experiential level for just a minute. A lot of times moves like the one that we're making or at least that's publicly visible has come because of a bad experience. And too often as Christians, we make theological shifts uh, or practical shifts because something went bad and just because something went bad doesn't necessarily mean it was wrong because where there's people involved, things can go south very quickly, amen? And so, but I do just wanna tell you, like I grew up in a church that was Calvinistic or reformed, that was charismatic, which is unusual for Calvinists, they're usually cessationists, and complementarian, which means traditional roles for men and women. So complementarians would say that men and women were created in the image of God, equal in dignity and value, but different in role and function. And in that difference, they would build in how men were supposed to function one way in marriage, typically as head or authority, and women were supposed to come under that authority and be subject to their husbands. And then in the ministry that pastors and elders were supposed to lead the church and women were supposed to function under the authority of those pastors and elders. And those often offices were meant to be held only by men. And that's kind of like a traditional view of uh, complementarianism. That's the church that I grew up in. Now, I will tell you, in that church, I observed firsthand a, a bunch of terrible, terrible fruit. Um, a lot of women who were subjugated and oppressed by their husbands. When you have a woman who's being made to submit, that's not submission, that's slavery. I, a lot of abuse of men was covered over under the guise of authority or authoritarianism. And really what was supposed to be some Christ-like love actually looked more like tyranny in the home. In that environment, I observed the abuse of children and really the repression of women in their many gifts in many ways throughout the church and, and some really terrible fruit. One of the other things that I saw was men suffering, men suffering under um, an expectation that they would be the leader of their home, a spiritual leader, that they would really be able to do everything first and best. And that's just not possible. And so a lot of the men in those environments constantly felt like a failure. They never were able to be the leader they were supposed to be or bring the type of leadership or care or priesthood to their home that they were supposed to. And a big part of that is um, they weren't gifted to do that, their wife was. And they didn't learn how to actually depend upon their wife or to lead their family together as a team. And so men were held to these un, unrealistic standards and women were really oppressed. And so there's been a lot of bad fruit that's come out of those environments. Now, not all complementarian marriages are like that. There's a lot of marriages where you have a, real, a man who's a real strong leader and a woman who's really like a, uh, you know, a two on the Enneagram, a server, a helper. She kind of aligns herself to her husband and it works out great for them. And they have a 50 year marriage and nobody complains. And so I'm not saying that it's all bad all the time. But I am saying that there is a paradigm here that is said to be from the scriptures, but I came to the conclusion that it really wasn't. And so I'd like to show you how I came to that conclusion and ask you to kind of evaluate that for yourself. I also just wanna say that Tiffany and I came to this conclusion early in our marriage. So we, we grew up in a complementarian church. And so she was never given the opportunity to lead in any capacity in that church while I was as a young pastor and pastor in training and so on and so forth. Um, but in our marriage, we never kind of bought into the whole complementarianism where I was the head of our home and she submitted to me and we always did things my way and I had 51% of the vote and if we didn't see eye to eye, then I got to decide. We didn't do that. Um, and we also, her and I don't actually have like traditional gender roles anyway. Like she does all the driving and I do like almost all the cooking. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but like if I don't cook dinner, kids don't eat. That's just how it is, you know? And... Um, and Tiff, so that's just the way it is. And like, I don't, I'm not ashamed of that or I feel like I'm doing like house chores and that's not like a pejorative for me at all because I actually really, really enjoy um, cooking. I love chopping vegetables and sauteing things and making meat and making food good and I'd rather eat my good food than, you know, I'm just saying. 
I'm saying, I mean, she, I'm just telling you, she'll tell you the same thing. She, she's, she'll eat the same six things her whole life. And I'm just, I can't live my life like that. Life's too short for that. So, um, so she drives and I cook. I still have to take out the trash for some reason. Um, but like, we've never really fit the stereotypes and there really are just a lot of stereotypes. A lot of the things that we assume with the word role have little more to do with the Bible than they do with culture. And they just are constantly changing. And so I just want you to consider for a moment that the perspective that's kind of um, normalized in church world that's contrasted to the, to the world isn't, isn't necessarily spot on. And I'd like to show you a little bit of that with whatever tools that I have in the time we have. Now, I am gonna cover this at length in a podcast this week that's probably gonna be a couple hours long because I only have you know, 35, 40 minutes to kind of show you this in sample form. And I wanna lead you through this process. Um, and I'm not gonna be able to be exhaustive at all, but I have studied this for the last 11 years. And about eight years ago, or maybe seven, I kind of actually shifted in my position from a complementarian to what's called a soft complementarian, where I felt like women could do everything except have the office of elder. And then I came to a conclusion of like, maybe this isn't, maybe that's not right either. And so I'm not egalitarian. I'll explain what those words are in a minute. Um, but I want to kind of let you know where I landed and invite you on the same journey. And if you have any questions at all, I'm happy to answer your direct questions. Um, if you have any challenges to the things that I say, any of my presuppositions or any of my interpretations of this, the Bible, I'm happy to address any of those with you. I am conversant in Koine Greek, biblical Greek, so I can do my own interpretation of the New Testament. I don't know Hebrew yet, so I'm relying on other scholars and, and uh, study tools, but I'm happy to have really, really, really deep conversations with you about any specific topic, and I invite your questions, and I'll happily either talk to you in person or cover them on the podcast. So here's the shtick. You ready? 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, period. Does that seem unclear? No. And part of the reason why um, people who are seeking to be faithful to God's word, typically on the complementarian side of this debate, um, they come to scriptures like that and there's a plain reading that seems to draw a certain conclusion. Instead of trying to say, well, that doesn't seem right, they fold that into the rest of what they understand the scripture to say and find ways that it actually fills out a bigger picture, which is where they come to conclusions like, oh, women can do everything except they can't be an elder or be a pastor or a teacher. And that's what he's talking about here. But that's not actually not what it's saying. Um, it's saying that she can't teach so does that mean she can't teach in seminary? She can't teach a high school? She can't, what, what can't she teach? So a lot of times the presuppositions that are carried into the interpretation of these verses aren't actually consistent with what the, the verse actually says. Another instance of that is 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35, where Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, as, is, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So that's very direct and seems to eliminate any and all speech. The only problem is, is that in chapter 11, the apostle Paul instructed the women in church that when they pray and prophesy in the corporate gathering, they should wear their head covering. Now, I just want to point out two things. You can't be silent and pray and prophesy, can you? So what's the inconsistency there? And then number two, why aren't you women wearing your head coverings today? <laughs> it's a fair question. Wouldn't you say, if we're gonna be literal about what the Bible says, why aren't we doing these things? And so you'll notice that all of these things require some level of interpretation. Do you understand? And so you have interpretation, which is where you're taking the words and understanding what they mean. 
And then you have exposition, which is where you're explaining them in today's language. And then you have application, which is where you're applying them to our situation and doing things that are consistent with the teaching that you've just pulled out of the text of the meeting. Does that make sense? So this is what I do when I prepare sermons. This is the work that I do behind the scenes. And so when I read the scripture, I'm not just like smarter than everyone or I just know things or I make stuff up. I actually have to do this work. And so I wanna just tell you a little bit about how this work gets done. First, though, I want to mention a lot of these terms we're not familiar with. Um, patriarchy is kind of a big buzzword, especially in leftist America. So patriarchy is bad. Smash the patriarchy. Patriarchy is a word that means father rule. Patriarchy, father rule. And patriarchy has been the dominant societal structure throughout all of human history. And so if you go back to the founding fathers, you know, we don't have founding mothers. You go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, all through the Bible. Patriarchy is kind of like the going societal structure where you have households that are kind of organized under a patriarch, a father. um, And then there's uh, that title is passed to the firstborn son, which is called the progenitor, the firstborn son. And this is a way in which human society is set up to flourish. So all of the wealth transfers and then the states are established and organization happens. And so you know who represents the family name and so on and so forth. And so there's all these rules that are built around patriarchy for the sake of a civil society. Um, But patriarchy is just a thing that happens uh, largely because in the non-technically advanced age before the industrial revolution. It's a pretty crazy, dangerous world out there. And everyone's a lot better off when the biggest, baddest dude is in charge of everything. Do you understand how this works? And so like you get the whole alpha male kind of approach and you just want the oldest guy and the toughest guy to be the head of everything and everyone's safer that way. And so when you're living out in the bush, that has its values. And when you're building society, that has its values. Um, But It's actually something that you find described for us as what's going on in the scriptures, but not nearly as prescribed as some people would have you to believe. So the other term I want to tell you is about traditionalism. And so sometimes called conservatism. This is kind of the idea of like, man, people have been doing this for hundreds of years. They can't have been doing it wrong. So we should just go with what they were doing. And there's a lot of impulse in conservative Christian circles to be traditional, to just go, okay, these values came from somewhere. People smarter than us for longer than us, closer to the origin of these things have been doing it this way. So we shouldn't change it unless there's a really good reason to change it. And so a lot of us just have a traditionalist bent to us. And so I might use that word in the sermon. I want you to know what it means. Around the topic of women in ministry and the role of women in church, there's two camps. The first is complementarian, which I just mentioned. This is the idea that men and women are created equal in dignity and value, but distinct or different in role and function. And so they complement one another. And so that's complementarianism. I love the term complementarianism because men and women are different and they do complement each other. And that's true. But built into that is an assumption that there's a hierarchy of authority in which the male is over the female. And so that is where those differences, they don't say that. The difference they're talking about though is that men are made to lead and women are made to follow. And that's the presupposition I like to challenge. On the other side of that debate is egalitarianism. Egal means the French word for equal. Equalitarianism means that men and women are equal in value and dignity and there is no distinction in their roles. And a lot of times those coming from the egalitarian side, they're not really overly concerned about being faithful to God's word. And so you're gonna get a lot of junk scholarship where people are like, oh, well, Paul was a misogynistic pig. Of course he thought that. Just move on. And you're like, well, that doesn't really square with how we're trying to understand the scriptures as divinely inspired. Or, or they'll, they'll say things like, 
They'll go to text criticism and be like, well, there's this one, we found this one fragment where this piece was moved and so it shouldn't be in there in the first place. They're just very quick to throw God's word out. And so they're kind of more in line with the culture. And so I don't, I, I haven't made my way over here for any of the same reasons that they have, but I do think that there's a problem with complementarianism. I want to talk about what it is. Um, I wish that was where the debate existed. Unfortunately, there is whole circles of, of church groups that have adopted a biblical feminism where they're saying the Bible's actually pro-female in a way that puts males down. And there's a whole group of people who are biblical patriarchists that actually say like, no, it's not just that patriarchy is described, like patriarchy is where it's at. Women need men to be strong. And there's a whole movement, like the Doug Wilson, Aaron Wren crowd. They're kind of like putting this picture forward of like the thing that a lot of people in our culture would call toxic masculinity. They would say is God's plan for humanity and everyone's better when there's a strong man. And so they're going even further towards that complementarianism in a way that I think is really unhealthy and unhelpful. So a bunch of these things are going on. And meanwhile, our world's trying to figure out what a woman is. So all these things matter, okay? So I just want you to know that uh, our commitment is to the scriptures. Uh, we're not seeking to be conservative for conservative sake or progressive for progressive sake. We're seeking to be faithful Amen. And so these are some of the, the issues. I wish I could do this in a way that's just simpler. I, I um, was having this conversation with Julian, my six-year-old son, and he wanted me to build him a tree house. And he keeps asking me to build him a tree house and show me pictures of tree houses and drawing pictures of tree houses. He doesn't understand like how much work and how expensive that is. And so we compromised and I bought him a birdhouse. <laughs> so I don't know why he thought that was pretty much the same thing, but whew, win for dad. So hop on Amazon, I get an eight inch birdhouse. We put it together in about 38 seconds. And yesterday while I was cooking dinner, uh, he and Molly were painting it. Molly's my eight-year-old daughter. He and Molly were painting it. And after they finished painting it, he goes, dad, I want you to write over the door. This is a house for birdies. Birdies, you can stay in this house. And I was like, whoa, oh, bud. So we don't need to write that on the house because you hang a birdhouse and see there's a little hole here and the birds are looking for places to land and this is like the shelter they're looking for. He was like, no, just write it, just write it. And I'm trying to like talk him out of writing and he's not getting it at all. And then Molly interjects, she goes, bud, birds can't read. (laughs) And just like that, he was like, oh, okay, never mind." (laughs) So speaking of having a woman around to clear things up, and I just wish I could just like simplify this for you, but it's a little difficult. So to the sausage factory we go. So here's the tour. Um, I'm just here to tell you that I'm not starting with um, a tradition. I'm not starting with a response to a bad experience. And I'm not starting by opposing culture. I'm here because I believe that this is God's word, that it's divinely inspired and preserved for us and that it is true down to the very words I also believe fundamentally it's cohesive. It's one, it's one message, one narrative, one story, and that story centers on Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about history. It's not about men or women or any of the issues we're coming to it with. It's about Jesus. He's at the center of all things, and we're trying to move toward him and understand him. And I think that when we get him right, we actually start to see everything else more clearly. Also, Um, The scriptures I already read to you, I read to you in English, and they are English translations from Greek. Now, you guys know, if you know any other languages besides English, you know, you've heard this joke before, like, what do you call someone who knows three languages? They're trilingual. And what do you call someone who knows two languages? Bilingual. And what do you call someone that knows one language? American, right? That's... So like, we're not really conversant with language and interpretation, but you know, if you speak Spanish and English or Portuguese and English, there's not always an exact way of saying a thing word for word, right? And so what's the Spanish word for tablecloth? 
I remember trying to have this conversation with a friend. Does somebody know it? Does anybody speak Spanish in here? What is it? Montana. It's not Mesa Ropar, is it? Wouldn't it be funny to say like the table shirt or the table clothing? Like, no, 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 no. That's, she's laughing. And this is how it is with Greek. Like if you're going to translate from one language to another, some amount of interpretation has to take place so that you can make it make sense to its new readers. Do you understand this? And so we believe that the original autographs, those original um, deliveries of the word of God is true, 100% word for word, but we're also working already with translation and interpretation. Also, I have this presupposition um, that this is cohesive, that it's not gonna contradict itself and there is a way to synchronize it, to understand it, for all of it to fit together. And so I'm operating on that. I don't just throw parts of it out that don't seem to fit. This is not like Ikea furniture. We're like, well, I got leftover parts, so... That's not how this works, okay? All right, so I wanna just walk you briefly through seven principles of interpretation. And I explained them in the first service and everybody fell asleep, so I'm not gonna do that. Um, but I don't know, did you, were these able to be on the screen? Did we, uh, no, okay. So you don't have to take notes. I'm gonna run through these just briefly. These are the seven things that I look at. Anytime I'm gonna preach a sermon to you, I wanna know what it means, not what I think it means or what I want it to mean or the, the message I'm trying to communicate and I'm looking for a scripture to, to support that. That's not how you write sermons. You open the scripture and you ask, what is the genre of what I am reading? So I just read to you from Pauline epistles. Those are letters, one of them written to the church at Corinth and one of them written to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy. One is a pastoral level, one is a church, church circular letter and they are doing different things. Corinthians is addressing multiple issues that the Corinthian churches were asking about and the apostle Paul was concerned about. And then in Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy who's a pastor who's got issues in his church and he's giving him instruction about how to lead his church through those issues. Now, if you don't know what you're reading, you guys know the difference between reading the phone book and a birthday card, Yes. You guys know the difference between reading Encyclopedia Britannica and a trashy romance novel, right? You open something, you have to know what it is you're reading and you interpreted it differently. This is why some people have no sense of humor at all. They read something you're like, I don't get it because you don't know what you're reading, right? So genre, somebody say genre. Secondly, context. Context is king. I just read you those verses completely out of context. I read one verse to you from, from 1 Timothy 2. Nothing before it, nothing after it, not in the setting of the whole letter. How do you know who he was talking about, what men, what women, what situation. You don't because I pulled it out of context. Anything you say out of context. Have you guys ever had someone say something you didn't say? Rumors traveling. And then they say, well, I heard you say it. What you heard was some words that came out of my mouth out of the context by which I said them. And this is just junk journalism and gossip and, and, and totally fruitless, right? And so the scripture is the same way. You can't take one verse and go, this is what it means in all situations and all times because it says that in this word order. No, context. Thirdly is authorial intent. Listen, um, it just drives me nuts when people say, that's not what it means to me. It doesn't mean anything to you. It only means what the author meant it to mean. Do you understand? The scripture only has one meaning. This is not, and, and, and we have this, we have this in, our, in our Supreme Court right now, right? You have justices who are going, we have this living document. We're trying to think, what would the founders say if they were around today? What, how does this speak now? No, 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 no. Those documents say a thing. You need to say what those things said and meant, then you apply them to today, right? You don't change the meaning of the thing based on what it means to you. No, authorial intent. How do the original audience understand it means nothing less and nothing more. Fourthly, composition. Somebody say composition. 
Listen, these are literary works. They are built in a way and they have a flow and they have a stream of logic oftentimes. And there's all kinds of mnemonic devices and literary devices that are built in to help us to understand the meaning and the purpose and what's at the center and what's peripheral and what's analogy and what's metaphor. And so you have to understand its composition. Fifthly, occasion. Somebody say occasion. That doesn't mean that you read the Bible on your birthday and Christmas. Occasion means what was the situation that this particular passage was speaking to, who was receiving it and when. Like the Old Testament, the Pentateuch was given to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness wandering before they went into the promised land, right? And so you're actually needing to read the Old Testament, not as though you were in the prehistory before the flood watching the earth get created. That's not when it was written. It was written when the, when the Israelites were discovering what it means to be a nation, having been set free from slavery in Egypt, now to be this new people of God with a new identity. And they're trying to understand where do we come from and why are we here and where is this going? Do you understand? And so occasion is super, super, super important. Sixthly, syntax. Isn't that a fun word? That just means the words matter. The words matter matter. And so you actually have to look at the actual words in these sentences and go, which words are here? For instance, did you know that in Greek, the word for wife and the word for woman are the same? Gune. There is no distinction between woman and wife in Greek. And so you have to decide when you're translating into English, is the writer talking about a woman or all women or a wife and all wives? And how would you know that? Because it's only one word. Do you understand why syntax matters? Same thing for husband, andros. It means husband or man. And so the, the interpreter, the translator is actually deciding for you when you read husband or wife in the New Testament. Did you know that? Syntax, words matter. And then lastly, this is the most important one. State your bias. State your bias. I listen to a lot of very smart Bible teachers, the same ones you listen to. And a lot of times they have this disposition that they are coming to the scriptures as unbiased observers and learners, and they're not. All of us have bias. All of us came from somewhere, have some set of experience, have a way of seeing the world. We have our own personalities and proclivities. We have our own positions and perspectives. And you have to recognize what angle you're looking at the word from. And if you're not willing to be intellectually honest about your biases, you will constantly be reading them into the text. Did you know that? And so you have to say, what is it that I fundamentally believe? What is the construct of interpretation that I'm starting with? And so if you're reading the Bible as a Calvinist, you're seeing the sovereignty of God and salvation as the center point of your interpretive lens. And so you're always looking to go who was saved and when and why and by whom and in what conditions. But I'm here to tell you that the sovereignty of God and salvation is true, but it's not the center of everything. Jesus is. Did you know that? And so you have to recognize what angle am I looking at this from? And so we're going to talk about that. Now, there's a bunch of terrible hermeneutics out there. And a lot of them you have built in. You don't even realize it because you were given it by somebody that was your primary Bible teacher. So if you were raised in a fundamentalist church, you probably have this disposition towards literalism where you have to see everything as literal as possible, as much as possible. If you came from a restorationist movement like Disciples of Christ or the Christian church, you, you have a blueprint hermeneutic where you're constantly trying to map the scriptures for what they say as a way that you can map and mimic your life because you're trying to get back to the biblical way of doing things. And this is why people argue about whether you should take communion every week or not, whether it should be one cup or many cups, whether we should baptize in Jesus' name only or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you, this is the same uh, issue that we run into with uh, the regulatory principle. You guys ever been in a church where they don't have musical instruments? Do you know why that is? 
Well, there's none listed in the New Testament. And so we have to do everything the way it's in the New Testament. There's instruments in the Old Testament. We're not under that covenant. And so all we can do is sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And so no musical instruments. Do you see that interpretive method? So this is where all these different things come from. Now, there's a bunch of culturally progressive traditions who don't care about God's word. All the ones I just mentioned to you are trying to find answers in here, but there's a whole bunch that aren't, they don't care about what's in here and they'll, they'll go with what's out there, what history has done or what good has happened, bad has happened, so on and so forth. Now, I wanna just give you some tools. And in order to do that, I wanna summarize for you a little bit of what happens in Genesis 1, 21. Now, I read to you 1 Timothy 2, 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Actually, I didn't read 11 inch row 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 13 says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Some people read that to mean this. Women are more easily deceived than men. Therefore, women shouldn't have authority over men and shouldn't teach men. Do you guys know any women? Do you know any men? Is that what's being said there? Or is that just the quickest thing you can go to by having one cursory read? Now, I love that it directs us back to Genesis chapters one to three. And in fact, 1 Corinthians does the same thing. The 1 Corinthians passage, which says that all the women should keep silent in the churches, but how can they if they were just told how to pray and prophesy, which is not keeping silent. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse eight, Talking about head coverings, it says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So we go right back to the creation narrative. And so we should be able to look at those passages and then know what both of those two things are explaining, shouldn't we? Now, I'm gonna cover this in broad form, long form length in the podcast, but I'm gonna summarize for you because we're running out of time. Here's what you're gonna find. In Genesis chapters one, two, and three, you get the creation narrative. And so God God says, with, let there be light, and there's light. And so you get days one, two, three, four, five, six. God creates everything in chapter one. Crowning creation is mankind. Let us make man in our image, verse 26. Male and female, he created them, right? And so we've got man as male and female in chapter one. What you'll notice is you can't read Genesis one linearly. This is what a lot of people try to do. A lot of young earth creationists try to open the Bible and say, how did this happen and when? Julian asked me this morning, dad, how old is the earth? You know what I told him? I have no idea I wasn't there. He was shocked because he thinks I know everything and I'm that old, right? I don't know. And the Bible's not trying to tell us how old it is. Did you know that? You know how old Christians should say the earth is? I don't know. I wasn't there. Because Genesis isn't about how and when. It's about what and why. And so you need to let Genesis tell you what Genesis is trying to tell you. God looked into a world that was formless and void and then he formed it and filled it. This is why days one, two, and three correspond with days four, five, and six, right? This is why you don't get any heavenly bodies until day four, because he formed light and darkness and he filled it with planets. Well, how do you have literal days on days one, two, and three if you have no sun? Like, does it make any sense? It's because you're asking the wrong question. And so God forms and fills, forms and fills. And then what does he do? In chapter two, after this narrative is explained, when no bush of the field, he's backing up into day six and he's explaining to us the creation of mankind as male and female. And he, d- he does something really special. He goes, look, I formed the man out of the dust of the ground. That's what Adam means, by the way, Adam, dirt man. I made the man and then I filled his lungs with the breath of life and made him a living creature. But then God doesn't just make Eve the same way. He could have done that. He could have gone, oh, here's the man, here's the woman. No, instead he makes the man alone. And then he gives them the task of naming all the animals and he reveals to him the prohibition against eating of the 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he's received revelation from God alone and he's been given this task alone and God brings him to the conclusion that it's not good that he would be alone. And then God says he's gonna make a helper fit for him. So what does he do? He causes a deep sleep to fall on the man. He removes a rib, closes up the, the flesh. And then from the rib, he forms the woman and he fulfills humanity by putting what was once one, now two. And then chapter two ends with the verse about marriage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so you get one becomes two becomes one. And this is the foundation for man as male and female, inequality and dignity, and the establishment of marriage as that basis of society where human flourishing can exist that leads to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, children and the building blocks of society. Now, where in there do you find the authority of God and a hierarchy of power built into maleness? That's the presupposition of complementarianism. There's two places you can find it. One is that the man was made first. And so just because he's first, does that mean that he's in charge? Maybe, that's what some people think. Secondly is because he called the woman, woman, and then he named her Eve. And so he's been given this power to create and to call things, right? But the reality is, is if you're starting with Genesis chapter one, God made mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them, and he gave them dominion over the earth. And so what are this story supposed to tell us? This, the story is supposed to teach the man that the woman is made of the same stuff as him and therefore equal in dignity and value and that he can't do what he's supposed to do, namely be fruitful and multiply without her. Yes, they are different, but they are called to the same work. And this is why I reject complementarianism because it creates a hierarchy in maleness that does not exist. And it's why I reject egalitarianism because it says that men and women are not different when in fact they are very different. The reality is, is if you read Genesis 1, 2, 3, this is the conclusion you come to, you ought to have interdependent co-regency. <laughs> but you know who's written about this? No one. No one. And I'm, I'm afraid of innovation. As a, as a student of the scripture, I'm not trying to be creative here. I'm just trying to tell you what I see in the passage. But now I dare you to read the Bible again in six months. And I bet you'll see interdependent co-regency everywhere. God made a promise to Abraham. Was it fulfilled through his efforts with Hagar? Who did it come to? The promised child came through Sarah. And then it was Isaac and Rebekah. And then it was Jacob and Esau. And then it was Rachel and Leah. And again and again and again, God is showing the plan of salvation. It doesn't come to, to Adam. It comes through the seed of the woman. You see, you start to read the whole Bible differently when you go, you know what, let's just take this male authority hierarchy out of maleness and let's just look at this through the lens of interdependent co-regency. The whole Bible changes, the whole thing. So my challenge is to you is to read it that way and watch to see what God has in store. Now, patriarchy is all throughout the Bible because patriarchy is a great way of organizing your society when the world is full of war and chaos and violence. Did you know that? You want the biggest, scariest, slightly crazy dude around and you want him in charge? That's good for everybody. But that's, that's, a, that's a description of the way things are. It's not a prescription of the way things ought to be. 
And what is praised for us is the way in which men honor women for being created in the image of God with dignity and value and that those women play their part while the men play their part. And that is what you see again and again and again and again in the scriptures. And I'm gonna detail a bunch of these Old Testament stories in the podcast, but there's a ton of them. They're everywhere. You can't miss them. They're not little oddities that complementarians try to explain away. No, in fact, they are the norm. Now, here's the reality. Men and women are differently. Men were built for work. Somebody say amen. But women were built for labor. Somebody say amen. Guess what you can't do, fellas? And so we're different, but we're meant to be working together. We reflect in distinct ways the nature and character of our creator and our union in marriage is a sign of human redemption through faith in the Messiah. The problem with a lot of complementarians is when they get to this whole idea about male headship, because 1 Corinthians says that the head of the woman is the man and the head of the man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. Well, then you have to stick subordination and hierarchy into the Godhead. Well, now you've just created a heresy because that's not true at all. There isn't, there's complete equality with no hierarchy in the Godhead. Now, Jesus, Jesus is sent by the Father and he does whatever the Father wants. So there's a mutual submission that's there and that's what's supposed to represent our Christian marriages as well. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and there's only humility, but there is no hierarchy. Do you, do you see this? Now, there's nothing wrong with hierarchy. If you're the boss, everyone should know you're the boss. Doesn't hierarchy bring clarity? Somebody say amen. Guess what? I'm in charge here today and you are not. If you try to take the stage, the security teams will tackle you. (laughs) Hierarchy is not bad and authority is not bad. Somebody say amen. I tell my kids this all the time. Authority, power is like money. It's amoral, but it's an amplifier. Do you know that? Listen, if if you're an irresponsible person and I give you lots of money, you will be very irresponsible. You understand? If you are an insecure, fragile person and I give you lots of power, you will be very insecure and very fragile and very dangerous. Do you understand? There's nothing wrong with power. It's just an amplifier to what you already are. So we shouldn't be afraid of hierarchy. We shouldn't be afraid of power, but it's really important that we understand that there is nothing inherently hierarchical or authoritative about men that's different from women. We were both created in the image of God, male and female, to represent the character and nature of God and to do a thing together that none of us could have done on our own. Somebody say amen. And this is the clear teaching of scripture. However, this is gonna be very hard to get out of our heads. I'm trying to decide what to include. Save it, save it, save it, save it, save it, save it. Save it, save it. You guys are gonna love the podcast this week. It's gonna be awesome. All right, here's the last thing I'm gonna say. This is the last hang up that I had. I didn't even mention this in the first service. Um, five minutes. Actually, can, can the worship team, can you guys come up here now? Um, one of the big hang ups for me was this whole, the whole headship thing. Okay, so in, in Ephesians chapter five, wives are called to submit to their husbands, right? You guys know this? Well, that seems like the husband's the boss and the wife needs to do, do what she's told. Doesn't it? Isn't that what it sounds like in English? It is, but it isn't at all. In fact, chapter five and verse 21 says, submit yourselves therefore unto each other. And then it applies that in the marriage relationship, beginning with the wives by saying wives unto your husbands. And there's no submit in verse 22. Did you know that? It's not in there. And the word for submit is the Greek word hypotasso, which means to dispose oneself to follow. And it's a word that has to do with you taking control of yourself. In fact, there's a Greek word for submit that's sometimes translated obey. That's hupakuo, which means to listen as a subordinate, like do what you're told. Did you know that? But that's not the word that's used there. 
And so the picture here is submission. Now, the man is the head of the woman and Christ is the head of the man. And here's why this is important for you to understand. Because headship is about representation. Do you ever wonder why all the priests were men in the Old Testament? Or why all the kings were men? Or why all the offices of prophet, there's lots of prophets, both men and women in the New and Old Testament, but the, pro, the office of prophet was all men. Do you ever wonder? Well, a lot of people would say, well, it's just keeping with maleness as being authoritative and hierarchical. Uh-uh, it wasn't. Because in the Garden of Eden, we get a picture between a man and a woman of Christ and the church. Think about this for a second. Where did God get the genetic material to make Eve? From the man. What part? The rib, because that's all he had to spare, right? Yeah, no? In fact, the Hebrew word there is not rib. It's side. He took the side. And so you have the one halved to make two, and then in marriage to come back together to make one. Side. And when Jesus died on the cross, what was the final act of violence that he experienced in order to make oneness with him a reality through faith. He was pierced where? In the side. And what came out? Blood and water. You see, Adam is the head of the woman because all men are in Adam until we are in Christ by faith. And Jesus is the rightful king of the universe and our great high priest and the prophet of God who's revealed himself. And so God has reserved these roles in the Old Testament for men because they were symbols of the Christ. But now, Galatians 3.28 tells us in Christ, there is no Jew and Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female. Why? Because now we are in Christ. And so this idea of headship is not about you being in charge. This is great news. Isn't it great news? All you men, you can go and be like, well, let's decide together. Pressure off. Maybe we need to figure out new ways. What are, what are the gifts and skills and abilities that God's given to you? Maybe you should be looking to your wife to do some things and to lead in some ways that just you aren't suited for. What if that was the reality? Now, I may not have convinced you, and there's probably no way I was able to be exhaustive, and the podcast is going to have a lot more material, but people have been debating these things for hundreds of years, and there's been so much ink spilled, and so you may not be convinced, and that's fine. I would like all your questions, because I want us to be on this journey together. What I will tell you is that I have worked very, 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 very hard to find good answers to these questions, and I have answers to every question you could possibly. I haven't found one objection that I have not already covered, and so I'm happy to have those conversations with you, and I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay, but here's what I want you to understand, that we are going to be faithful to God's word as a church, that my life is fixated on Jesus. My marriage to Tiffany is fixated on Jesus. My parenting of our children is fixated on Jesus. The reason that I'm alive and what I'm giving my life to is about Jesus. This church is going to stay fixated on Jesus, but we believe that the way to stay the most Jesus-centered is to build on a model that is interdependent, co-regency, and honors man as made and male and female in the image of God. Let us learn to build our marriages in Christ-like relationships of dependence and love and devotion and respect and submission, mutual one to another. Let's be a different kind of people, a Jesus kind of people. And I'll bet if you take even a little bit of time to see if this is in fact the consistent message of the scripture from the front to the back, you'll find that this is actually the case. Now listen, this is gonna require us to make a little bit of room in our thinking. And so if you've been thinking a certain way and you go, whoa, paradigm shift, that's fine. Just take the shift, amen? Um, Would you guys stand? The team's just gonna lead us in a really brief version of this song because I want us to express this to the Lord. God, I pray 
for any place in our minds where our, our practice is challenged, Lord, this may not be as welcome of a message, but we know that you only have good things in store for all of us. And so we are just fixing our attention on you. We are only submitting our whole lives and thoughts and beliefs on you. And we have given you our whole lives. And so we just trust you to make this true and real and lead us into ways everlasting. In Jesus' name.